It's as we gather together on the Lord's Day, remembering the risen Jesus Christ who has opened up that home for us, that we sing of our home, and we have a home longing in our hearts as we think about that day when we will see our Savior. Let's turn to the Word of God. Let's turn to the Old Testament book of Ruth, which we started last Lord's Day morning. And we're going to read from the first chapter, verses 6 to 14. It's page 267 in the Church Bibles. And just to uh, explain the context there, what we have, of course, is a situation where there are three women left, three widowed women, Naomi, the mother, stepmother, the mother-in-law, I should say, the mother-in-law of two Moabite foreign daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, and they are hearing that there is now bread in the land of Israel. Verse 6, then Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, As you have dealt with the dead and with me, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go on with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, Would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. And tempted though I am to read on, I'll pause there. And you must come back next week for the next installment. But let's look at these words. The last few words of verse 14 in particular. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. The most compelling, powerful, beautiful 
stories in all human literature will have at some point, at some point, an agonizing decision, a knife-edge cliffhanger, a climactic turning point. Take perhaps the best-known words of literature in the English language, most often quoted English literature, written by Shakespeare concerning Hamlet, Prince of Denmark. What is his great climactic dilemma? To be or not to be? That is the question. That is to live or not to live? Or take one of the great classic novels of more recent English literature, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, the great question for Elizabeth Bennet, to marry Mr. Darcy or not to marry Mr. Darcy? That was her dilemma. Or for a slightly more modern children's classic, J.M. Barrie's Peter Pan, to grow up or to forever remain a child in Neverland, That is the question. And the same is often true in real life, isn't it? What's been the great media story of the last ten days or so? To remain a full-time royal, or to go and live in Canada and renounce one's HRH and other royal privileges. And the same is true in the Word of God. To stay in a foreign land, feeding pigs, though I'm so impoverished. Or for the prodigal son to return home to his father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The great question, the great turning point, the great dilemma. And there are times when we are forced to choose between two and only two options. And in many cases... Those options present themselves where one is rational and sensible and obvious and low risk. It's the play safe choice. And the other one is the higher risk, more adventurous choice with a great sense of the unknown uh, accompanying it. And that's exactly what we find in our narrative of Ruth this morning. We have two widowed, childless, foreign young women. One called Orpah and one called Ruth. And they are faced with only two possible options that they could possibly choose. Do they return to the land of Moab? To their own country? To their own home? Where everything is familiar and comfortable? to the possibility of future husbands and future children. That seems safe. Or do they go on with their mother-in-law, Naomi, herself widowed and childless and older? Do they go to the great unknown, to a foreign land, not knowing what to expect? And we see here in this passage that these two women ultimately make two opposite choices. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, and the sense of kissing is 
a kissing goodbye, a final parting, a farewell. I won't see you again, not ever perhaps. It's final, they're separating. But Ruth clung to Naomi. A clinging of staying, a clinging of sticking, a clinging of devoted and unbreakable lifelong commitments. And today the same question confronts every one of you. Will you kiss goodbye or will you cling with staying commitments? And I want us to see this drama unfolding in three acts, in three decisions taken at different points by these two daughters-in-law. Let's begin in verse 10. Look with me at verse 10, where we see Orpah and Ruth acting together, acting in harmony, acting in unison. And they say to her, they say to her with one voice, no, we will return with you to your people. Now, it's already a very surprising thing that they should think of doing that. We said this last Sunday morning. Their circumstances are extremely precarious. Last week we looked at what we called the ground zero character of their situation. They are young, foreign, childless widows. And in that culture, they are the most vulnerable people imaginable. And surely they would be far, far better off to play it safe. To go back to their own country. To people speaking their own language with the same accents and familiar faces and familiar clothes and everything else being familiar. And that's what Naomi is counselling them. When she says to them in verse 8, return each of you to her mother's house. She's actually saying, go back to a place where you will find love and indeed marriage and future happiness. The mother is associated with everything to do with, with, with romance and protection and covering and caring and indeed future marital happiness. As Naomi makes very clear in verse 9 where she says quite openly to Orpah and Ruth, the Lord grant that you may find rest. What does that mean? That you may find peace, that you may find a home, that you may find a settling place, a place of happiness. Each of you in the house of her husband. There could be no future for these women, it would seem, without a husband to protect them and care for them and keep them. Now it's just worth noting in passing, Naomi is a somewhat enigmatic figure in this book of Ruth. What does she stand for? Well, we can say this about Naomi. She clearly has an understanding that the Lord is God over the whole earth, over all the nations. Look at her words here in verse 9. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Let's credit Naomi with this. To her, the Lord is no local Canaanite deity. He is the God of the whole earth. And she understands that the Lord rules over the affairs of people in Moab as he does over people within the borders of Israel. 
But notice this. Despite this plea of Naomi, there is at this stage still a commitment on the part of both these young daughters-in-law to stay with Naomi. The prospect of parting is too painful. It's too difficult. It's too harrowing. It's too heartbreaking. This is a highly emotionally charged passage. Naomi kisses them. Here in in verse, uh, where are we now? Verse 9. And that kiss there is a kiss of goodbye. It's a kiss of parting. It's a kiss of, I may never see you again in, in this life. And what do all these women do? They raise their voices, they lift up their voices, and they weep loudly. They give full vent to their emotions. And let me make this point. The Bible gives no indication anywhere that for a man or woman of faith to somehow bury their emotions and subdue and suppress their tears and their weeping or their wailing or their crying is somehow a good thing. God did not create us to be blocks of stone or wood, but men and women and boys and girls with hearts and emotions that express themselves, especially when there is a time of parting. There is nothing virtuous in having a stiff upper lip or just dabbing the corner of your eyes with a hanky if you are moved from time to time. I know we are all different. We can't all become different. We can't change our inner personalities. But the Bible often shows people giving great expression to grief and mourning, even when that loved one has gone to be with the Lord. I often think of Stephen's passing in Acts chapter 7, chapter 8, We read there that though Stephen had gone to be with the Lord Jesus Christ, the people didn't throw a party. No, they did not. We read that godly men buried Stephen and made great lamentation for him. We see in this passage the pain of possible separation you see for Orpah and Ruth from Naomi. There is a bond, a family companionship and a closeness that runs so very, very deep. They don't want to be parted from their beloved mother-in-law that they have known for ten years and longer. The pain of separation is too great. They will carry on with her at this stage. At this stage. But we move on to verse 14. And the second scene, the second act, as it were, is that Orpah decides to return and to go back. Verse 14, B, there are three parts in verse 14. Verse 14, B, 14, part 2, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. She kissed her goodbye. She's off. That's it. Four verses after saying with Ruth, no, I'm going with you, her mind has changed. It's time to go back to her mother's house. It's time to go back to the land of Moab. And I ask the question, what has changed her mind? What's persuaded her that it's the right thing to do, to actually leave Naomi and go back to Moab? And the answer is that Naomi herself has persuaded her with ever more forceful and persuasive and convincing 
arguments that there really is no other option for Orpah than to turn back. Look how in verse uh, verse 11 and in verse 12 you have a repeated uh, entreaty, a command, an exhortation, almost an instruction. Turn back, my daughters. Turn back, my daughters. It's the only viable thing you can do. Today we would say, Orpah, Ruth, this is a no-brainer for you. There's really only one option for you here. How can I, Naomi, she says, how can I bring any blessing, any hope, any prospect into your barren lives? And there are in these verses 11 to 13 a mounting sense that for these young daughters-in-law to stick with Naomi would be foolish, would be pointless, would be hopeless, would even be ridiculous. Because what is the only kind of future that these young women could possibly imagine in life? Well, it was in those days and in that culture, it could only be a future involving a strong male relative. A husband, a father, a son, maybe a brother, And Naomi says, look, I can't give you these things. If you come with me, it's a complete dead end. Don't come with me. There's no point. And we can paraphrase Naomi's argument until we see just how persuasive it is. She stands there before these two young women and says effectively this. Look at me. Here I am. Do I have any unborn sons in my womb right now that they could be your future husbands? Of course not. It's ten years since my husband died. I'm not going to be pregnant. What can I give you? Do you think I'm going to find another husband anytime soon? Which man in his right mind would want to marry me, Naomi? Now that I'm past the age of childbearing, it's just not going to happen, is it? And just supposing by some considerable miracle, a man met me today and decided to marry me tonight, and supposing by some even greater miracle that I, like Abraham's wife Sarah, as an older woman, were to conceive at least two sons by that man tonight, or very soon, and then nine months later, an older mother bring them safely to birth, what would you do? This is all very improbable, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, would you, would you wait until these sons reach the age at which they could father children? Until they're into their teens? Would you wait that long? Do you think that uh, two young men, sons of mine, are going to want to marry widowed, childless, rather middle-aged Moabite women in so many years' time? It's not going to happen, is it? Orpah hears all these things and she is persuaded. 
it's not worth carrying on. And there's more loud crying on the part of both of these women, all of these women. But Orpah's mind is made up. It's time to go home. It's the only sensible option. The hard facts of cold reality have won the day. This is no time, thinks Orpah, to let my heart govern my head. My heart still says that I am bound to my mother-in-law, Naomi, but my head says there is no future for me being with her. I'm going to return home. I'm going to kiss her goodbye. I'm going back to the land of Moab. And that is the last we read of Orpah anywhere in the Bible. And the Bible doesn't tell us that she made the right choice. And the Bible doesn't tell us that she made the wrong choice. There is silence on that question. What might we say about Orpah's choice? What do you think about her choice? What would you have done? What would you do if you were Orpah? I'm asking you that question. What would you do? Didn't she make the obvious choice? Didn't she make the reasonable choice? Didn't she make the common sense choice? But here's the big question. Why did Ruth make a different choice? And this book of Ruth is written for us. And in some senses, the whole Bible is written for us in order to commend Ruth's choice to us. Ruth's choice. The different choice. The adventurous choice. The foolhardy choice. The crazy choice. The mad choice. Let's come to Ruth's choice. Verse 14c, last part of verse 14. But Ruth clung to her. But Ruth clung to Naomi. That verb to cling is the same verb, and this is a mightily significant point. It's the same verb to cling as we read in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 uh, to describe Adam clinging or cleaving to his wife Eve. And this is most, most expressive and eloquent. I read from Psalm 63 at the beginning of this service in verse 8. Same verb again. My soul clings to you. Ruth clung to Naomi. Ruth joined on to Naomi. Stronger than the gorilla superglue. Stronger than any force you've ever reckoned with in any human society. Is the grip and the embrace and the clinging of Ruth Naomi. Can you see them? Can you in your mind's eye imagine them both? Can you picture this young woman holding fast to her older mother-in-law and saying, I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to leave you. 
the power, the grip, the determination, the resolution of Ruth in saying, as she's going to say next week, do not, do not forbid me, uh, do not urge me or to leave you or return from following you. Is it worth trying to separate them? Is it worth even attempting to pull them apart? Well, we will see more of this next week, but I want to ask a question this morning. Why did Ruth cling to Naomi? Ruth has ears to hear. Ruth has eyes to see. Ruth has a brain to reason with. And Ruth has heard every word that Naomi has just spoken to herself and her sister-in-law, Orpah. Ruth has heard how all the facts of life are stacked against her in every way. Ruth has heard just how humanly hopeless it would be for her to go on with Naomi. It makes sense to go back to Moab. But whereas Orpah takes Naomi's strong advice, Ruth does not. Even when Naomi tries to persuade her again in verse 15. Why does Ruth cling to Naomi? You know what? We don't really read at this stage of any strong explanation as to why Ruth does this. Not yet. Not yet. And yet what we see here and what we will go on to see in the chapters which follow is just how strong, how firm is Ruth's loyalty and commitment. Not only to Naomi, you understand, but to Naomi's God, And it is a loyalty and a commitment and a clinging that is so strong, even though every human circumstance seems to be against her. Because what we see at this early stage in Ruth is what we might reasonably call simple, basic, essential, even primitive and childlike, all of those things, but we see faith. We see trust. We see commitment. And we see these things at their purest and at their most innocent. But understand this. This is not merely Ruth clinging on to Naomi. This is Ruth clinging through Naomi to the God of Naomi. It's a faith that goes beyond Naomi's capacity to do anything. Ruth is saying, yes, I know, Naomi, that you can't give me what I need now. I know that you will not be the mother of a son for me anytime soon. But I'm not looking only to you. I'm looking beyond human strength and power to your God. And I know that your God is far greater than my seemingly hopeless outward circumstances. Now, just supposing that we were to somehow teleport ourselves into that scene 3,000 plus years ago and stand in front of Ruth and interview Ruth in whatever language she spoke and say, Ruth, I have a question for you. What do you know about this God? Tell us all you know about Naomi's God. We have no idea. We have no idea what she would tell us. 
how much or how little. We can only speculate. I think in all probability that Ruth would have heard a great deal from Naomi about this God. Maybe about what this God had done in the past when there had been a previously barren and childless woman called Sarah. We can only speculate. We can only guess what uh, Ruth would have known about the God of Abraham and Sarah and the God of Isaac and Rebekah and the God of Jacob and of Rachel and the God who had saved Moses from death and the God who had brought his people over the Red Sea and into the Promised Land. We don't know how much or how little she knew. Let's even suppose for a moment that Ruth's knowledge was far lower than the knowledge of the youngest Sunday school child in this building this morning. We know this. We know this. That for Ruth, the great story, the great adventure, the opening of the doors into a brighter, more hopeful, more glorious future, that all that was just beginning. We know that for Orpah, the door is closed, the gate is shut, and her story is over. But for Ruth, the story is only now getting underway. And we know if we read on that it becomes for Ruth a wonderful story, an exciting story, a story which shows how God led her to many, many rich blessings which we see in the chapters which follow. And how in time this obscure, unknown, foreign, widowed, childless woman in poverty and obscurity becomes a vital link in the chain of God's big picture of salvation and of love for all his people. Let me now, as I come towards the end, just leave Ruth for a moment and turn the attention to every one of you. What will you do with Naomi's God? What are you doing with this God? Will you kiss him goodbye? Will you say, that's it. It's been nice having some acquaintance, but that's it. I'm off. I have some knowledge and some experience, but I'm going now. Or will you cling to him so as to be with him forever? Some of you know a great deal about this God. Some of you are well versed in the Bible. Some of you may be here for the first time. Some of you are here for the second or third time. Some of you may not know much about this God. But why are you here today? Why are you here today? Are you here because you have some awareness of this God? Some consciousness of God? Do you have some idea that we've gathered here in Grove Chapel on this Sunday morning and that our gathering has everything to do with this great God? God. What does the word God mean? 
I won't use advanced theological language. I'll use very simple language this morning. What is God? The greatest being of all. The person, indeed the the three personal being, who is above everything, who made everything, who made you in your mother's womb, who brought you into this world, who gives you life and breath and everything else, the God who made the sun that shines in today's gloriously blue sky, the God who gives you food and drink and clothing and shelter, the God who gave you loved ones to bring you into this world and to raise you into this life. Who is this God? He is good. He's good. He's perfect. He's without fault. He's without sin. He knows everything. He can do everything. He can be in some way we can't understand everywhere. And he's a God of love. He's a God of love. He's a God who wants to draw you and me into his own family circle. Whoever you are, do you know this about God this morning? And maybe you don't know enough to be certain yet about whether following this God is a good idea or not. You don't know what will happen to you if you follow this God wholeheartedly. You think to yourself, if I cling to him as Ruth did, how will it go for me? What will the future bring for me? Will there be risks? Will there be dangers? Will there be losses and difficulties? Well, the answer is that there will be all sorts of things that happen if you follow this God. But let me again tell you this. Look at Ruth. This poor, widowed woman who clung to her mother-in-law and clung through her to her mother-in-law's God is the one who gained a reward, the one who found hope, the one who found joy, the one who in time found life and blessing and salvation. Indeed, don't we just see this? Naomi had said to both her daughters-in-law, you won't get anything if you follow me. You won't gain anything if you follow me. There's nothing but barrenness for you. In fact, Ruth, by going with Naomi and Naomi's God, went on to gain far, far more than Naomi's wildest dreams could ever have envisaged. And I will therefore say this to you. If you cling to this God, to the God of the Bible, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It may well be in your own eyes and in the eyes of those around you, the risky choice, the adventurous choice, the foolish choice, the foolhardy choice, the uncertain choice. But in the great eternal scheme of things, it is the choice which leads, it is the only choice which leads to true happiness, to everlasting life, to salvation, to glory, 
Maybe today is your great moment of decision, your great crunch day. To follow or not to follow, to cling or not to cling, to embrace Jesus Christ or to refrain from embracing him, to say, I will follow you or I will not follow you. Today is the day of choice for you and today is the day of salvation. There is a gospel message. There is a message that says to everyone who hears and believes, come and you will find rest for your soul. You will find eternal life. You will find reality and truth that you won't find anywhere else because God and God alone has sent his son to be the savior of everyone who believes in him. Cling on to the one whose saving love is stronger than death. And as you do so, eternal life and blessing will be yours now and forever and forever. Let's pray together. O Lord, great and mighty God in heaven, whose Ways are so far above all that we can wonder at and imagine and perceive. O God, who does things that are so glorious and so wise and so holy, but God of love and God of grace, God of mercy, pity, compassion and salvation, we cry out to you today. And may every soul here May the soul of the youngest child who can understand the simplest words that I can speak, right up to the oldest person in this building this morning, be like Ruth the Moabitess, a soul who clings to the God of Naomi. O Lord, here we are as a gathered people, as it were a Naomi in the Moab of the 21st century representing and holding out life and salvation in a dark, grim, and bleak world. And, O Lord God, may those you would seek out and save cling to you and say from the heart today, as Ruth was to go on and say, Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Our God, we come to you now. We ask you to come and be with us all and add to our number and deepen our faith and our love. We pray all in Jesus' name. Amen.